Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean's developer cloud makes it simple to launch in the cloud and scale up as you grow. They have an intuitive control panel, predictable pricing, team accounts, worldwide availability with a 99.99 uptime SLA and 24-7, 365 world-class support to back that up. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, scale, store, secure, and monitor your cloud environments. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog. Welcome to Practical AI, a weekly podcast that makes artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. This is where conversations around AI, machine learning, and data science happen. Join the community and Slack with us around various topics of the show at changelog.com slash community, and follow us on Twitter. We are at Practical AI FM. Okay, here's Daniel and Chris. Welcome to another episode of Practical AI. This is Daniel Whitenack, one of your co-hosts. I'm a data scientist with SIL International, and I've got my co-host with me, Chris Benson, who is a principal AI strategist at Lockheed Martin. How are you doing, Chris? I am doing okay. I'm safe and I'm well, and uh, so Uh is my family, so that is a, a good sign for me. Yeah, that's great. I'm recording in a new location because we've got a bit of a full house at the moment with my brother-in-laws being back from college and living with us. And so I've transitioned my studio out into the dining room. So it's been an interesting week in, in that sense as well. We're all making adjustments these days. The, the world is, uh, is an unusual, unusual time. Yeah, yeah, we're all making adjustments. But um Yeah, I've actually, um, it seems like I've been more busy work-wise since the crisis started than even before because uh, SIL has been making various efforts to contribute in beneficial ways related to COVID-19, including trying to translate the phrase wash your hands into as many languages as as we can. Um, Part of that is machine generated, and then part of that is just uh, crowdsourced translations. And I think we're up to 454 at my last check. I know I saw you tweet about that a few days ago. And so uh, if if you're not following Daniel, uh, you definitely should. And you can see the work that he did there. Yeah. And those conversations and that work also led to some other discussions with one of my contacts at Intel. And she pointed me to this other project called COVID QA, which some people at Intel started collaborating with with this team from DeepSet AI. And I was super fascinated by this project and, and also interested in potentially contributing because they're looking to up the language support as well. Um, but I had a conversation with them and, and they've agreed to be on the podcast today. So we've got Timo from DeepSet and then also Tony from uh, Intel. Welcome, guys. Hey, welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks for the introduction. Um, it's really been um, a great uh, a week and two weeks, actually, because um, this is how we uh, started this uh, COVID QA project. But um, should I um, talk a little bit about um, myself uh, first to begin with? Yeah, please do. If, if you want to introduce yourself and then we'll ask Tony to do the same. 
Okay, yeah. Uh, so, uh, hey, I'm uh, Timo and I'm uh, co-founder of an NLP startup in uh, Berlin and I would say a total NLP, natural language processing uh, geek. I studied uh, data science and computational neuroscience and uh, then co-founded um, the startup DeepSet uh, two years ago in Berlin, which is actually a really um, great place for a startup. Um, a lot of um, and talent uh, are coming here and also a lot of the open source um, companies uh, are based in Berlin, for example, uh, Spacey um, or maybe you know uh, Raza. Yeah, we've, we had Spacey on. Uh, Spacey on the podcast a little bit ago. And yeah, Berlin sounds like quite a place to be a developer. Um, I, I definitely need to make a trip there. I was going to say, we need a practical AI road trip. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, totally. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a totally great, vibrant city. Of course, nowadays, it's a bit more uh, empty and calm. Um, when you go, for example, we have a huge uh, airport that uh, got, uh, got shut down after um, the, um, the, the, the change in uh, government. Um, and uh, this field is completely empty nowadays. And normally, it's full of people and very uh, a lot of people doing sports or, or celebrating there. But um, yeah. Um, so at uh, DeepSet, I'm um, responsible for, for innovation um, because we believe that there has been a lot of advancements in deep learning and also in natural language processing, and this has to be brought to the industry. But also what is really important to us is getting NLP technology to work on German language. And um, for this, we are very deeply rooted in open source technology. We um, train a um, Birch model, like these um, language models um, that got open sourced by Google, and we trained these on, on a lot of German text data and also open source to this. And um, this is giving us a lot of training from the community a lot of uh, researchers uh, German researchers are using this and um, yeah this is just a really great time to contribute to uh, open source projects awesome yeah thanks for the intro Tony um, you want to let us know a little bit about your background and how you eventually ended up where you're at now yeah absolutely thanks for having us so I'm Tony Reyna I'm a medical doctor and data scientist and I'm a chief AI architect for health and life sciences at Intel so my primary role is actually taking artificial intelligence algorithms and trying to make them run faster on, uh, well, on Intel products, obviously. A lot of what I've been doing has been in the medical imaging space, so CTs, MRIs, you know, things like that, but been branching out into uh, genomics and particularly natural language processing, so the NLP stuff. Timo and I kind of first met with uh, some of the German work that he was doing, which I, I, I like the, the playfulness of NLP. They, they name things after uh, Sesame Street characters uh, like Bert and Ernie and Elmo and things like that, which is kind of kind of a fun group to be working with when you when you work with uh, researchers that really love love to you know have kind of fun things to do it makes the logos a lot better <laughs> it makes the logos a lot better nobody nobody forgets bert now so <laughs> poor bert poor bert i mean but you know bert's now like you know a, a, a world celebrity now in terms of uh, ai researchers uh, but uh, yeah no it's it's really great and you know um, it, i mean bert's only been a couple years now maybe even less that uh, that has been in existence and has just kind of taken the the field by storm so so yeah this this project with uh, with timo that we we kind of looked at since we were already connected he just popped up on my LinkedIn page and said, hey, we're, we're doing this COVID question and answer thing. We'd love to get some help. And I said, well, let's figure out how to help out. So that's what we've been doing is, is uh, obviously 
We've been really busy in Intel, just working, you know, as everybody is around the planet, basically trying to figure out ways we can help with COVID. And obviously we're a tech company, so we're not healthcare. We're not going to, you know, be able to go out there and and do, you know, magic um, like, you know, healthcare providers are doing. But, you know, we're going to do what we can. and, And this is one of the ways we think we can really make a difference. Yeah, you know, this is just such an unprecedented time. And as we just for it's moving so fast that uh, for context for listeners who uh, who are tuning in, uh, we're actually recording this on Tuesday, March 31st. And we don't normally say that when we record episodes, but given the topic and given how fast this is evolving, I thought that uh, a, a point in time was worth having. Just to, to set the context and then kind of, I'd like to uh, come back over to you, Tony, for a little level setting for us. I know that it, right now, We're at a point where there's 203 countries, areas, and territories that have COVID-19 cases. As of today, the World Health Organization said 754,000 and change, pardon me, I'm just to round out the numbers of cases. There's almost 37,000 cases around the world that resulted in death. In the U.S., we're at uh, 163,500 cases, and we are approaching 3,000 deaths, which we may hit today based on the current run rate which would here in the US which would put us on the same as as 911 in terms of that. So it's a moment in history that none of us have ever experienced. There's nothing I guess other than maybe the uh, Spanish flu of 1918 that's comparable in any way and I know that has limited comparisons. I'm wondering if if you can kind of level set, you know, beyond just the numbers that I called out, you know, that are on the websites everyone is following, you know, where we are today, what that looks like from your perspective as a medical doctor that's dealing with this. And then obviously we'll talk about how we're using data to start attending to these problems that we're facing. Yeah. I mean, I think just from the medical aspect, I mean, I haven't practiced uh, in over 20 years, basically. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't be the best person to answer about kind of the clinical things. and But this is the strangest part of this whole thing is that when people ask me how was it going, all I know is because we're, we're kind of locked down and stay in place and shelter in place, I can tell you how it's going in my house and everything else I get from, from reading and from, you know, listening to the news and, and things like that. And I think that's what's just kind of curious about this is I, I've I feel like I want to be out there and doing things. And even my my wife's a a retired psychiatrist from the Navy. And, you know, she was actually even thinking about, you know, should I kind of lend a hand somewhere? You know, what can I do? And, you know, and I guess that's a great thing. And, but that's also kind of where we're at is everybody wants to help. And yet it's this odd situation where, you know, the best thing for most people is just to shelter in place and make sure that we don't, you know, keep spreading things and, and, and trying to get it under control. That's a great point right there. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things you mentioned, which really struck a chord with me is the idea that we're all kind of sheltered in place, at least for the most part, a lot of people are, and we're getting information from various sources. There's so much information swirling around. Some of that's recent, some of that's not recent, some of that's from trusted sources, some of it's not from trusted sources. Um, We're hearing anecdotes from our friends and family. They're hearing things and things are getting passed secondhand. Could you talk a little bit, either one of you, about, you know, what you've seen in terms of the spread of accurate information and the problems related to actually information spread and, and the virus? Yeah, I think Timo should go on that because he's definitely the one that started this on trying to get factual information out there. 
Yeah, exactly. So, of course, I mean, um, uh, social media is um, quite difficult to dissemble, um, like uh, really truthful information. And this is exactly how we uh, started the Covert QA project. Um, it was two weekends ago. There was um, a hackathon organized by the German uh, government and um, other authorities. Uh, it was actually a, a huge event, uh, 45,000 people in one uh, Slack workspace. All virtual. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and all remote and uh, like a beehive uh, buzzing about. And part of this um, hackathon, um, we decided to focus on getting factual information. And that's why we uh, looked at official government pages and um, already saw quickly that if you look at a single government page, there's not so much information and that the information need is actually spread across a lot of um, official uh, pages. And this is exactly the birth hour of uh, COVID-QA, where we wanted to aggregate these official sources and make them available and searchable in a meaningful way. And um, yeah, this was during the hackathon. Uh, two weekends ago and there were about um, 25 developers just jumping on to um, this project. Uh, we were five core developers from, from DeepSet, um, worked basically the whole weekend through and uh, with the support of these external people, um, it was really fun to, to develop the UI, to develop the backend, develop uh, scrapers that scrape these sites and bring all pieces together. And afterwards, uh, after this hackathon, um, there's also people now interacting, but um, also people from external um, coming and wanting to collaborate, wanting to help, um, wanting to um, extend. And this is exactly how we got in contact then uh, with Tony, um, us following on LinkedIn. And I think this is the most great part of this project to have a really like a community that is uh, fast, agile, that is not bound to bureaucracy, that there's no approvement processes, like long approvement processes. It's just we, the, we have a situation and we need to work on it. And this could help people actually saving saving their lives or the lives of their relatives. That was the nice thing about, you know, with, with Timo's group is that DeepSet was already set up to kind of do NLP and do it at scale. And so it was one of these things where I knew coming into it that A, they had something already in like the first weekend that you could work with and B, they had the engineers and they had the data scientists that could make this thing scale. So, you know, they really just needed, you know, resources to kind of come in and, and help them to make it scale, but they had the machinery ready to go. So I'm curious before we, and, and I want to dive into that machinery here in just a second in, in terms of like the end goals of COVID QA and its functionality and kind of some of the things under the hood. But before we get into that, maybe we could just kind of uh, set a foundation in terms of, you know, after you've kind of looked at what what sources of data are out there, what sources of information are out there, what they're talking about and what people are asking, what, what is the sort of information that people really need to know during this time? Is it symptoms? Is it, you know, best practices for hygiene and, and hand washing? What, what are you seeing as kind of some of the main pieces of information that, that really need to get to as many people as possible? It depends. So I think it's there's two groups that, that we're getting at with this. The first group is just the layperson that's you know out there, and they're the ones that are going to hit the tool that's as it exists right now, which is you know one that basically will sift through a lot of World Health Organization and the CDC kind of FAQs, and they're looking for you know what's the best way to disinfect you know my house, or you know what's the best way of you know washing my hands, or you know can I 
this or, you know, will this help? That's where it is right now. So that's kind of the first group of people that would be using this. And then what I thought was interesting was was coming in to add the second group, which is going to be the researchers that want to look for new things. And these are the data scientists and geneticists and physicians and epidemiologists that want to come in and, and, and actually do research on COVID um, and on coronavirus. And so one of the things that Tima and I talked about was there was a data set that was released on Kaggle by the Allen Institute, by the White House, NIH, Georgetown, CZI, MSR. Um, it was a whole group that put it out called CORD-19. It was the Coronavirus Open Research Data Set Challenge. Um, and it's something like, I want to say like 25,000 PubMed articles. So these are peer-reviewed uh, you know, high quality articles that they basically just as a search on like coronavirus and virus and, you know, and got all the articles basically. And, and so the idea was, well, you know, BERT and all of these great models have, you know, things called like extraction AI, where you, you get to do a question and answer system for this large body of articles. And so the, the question would be, you know, when the Kaggle thing went out, it was like, here's a bunch of data. Can you find interesting things to do with it? And I thought, well, the first thing you need with a mountain of data is a way to sift through it for actionable, you know, relative data that's actionable. And, you know, Tima's group had something called Haystack, which was like, you know, trying to sift through a haystack for a needle. Um, and I thought, what if we take this, um, we annotate it using like the Stanford question and answer type of models, uh, the squad models, and be able to actually have researchers give a free tool that researchers can go through the core data set and be able to type in random questions that are you know, things that are not going to be how to wash your hands, but things that are like the beta subunit of the globulin of the such and such, a, you know, whatever. And it will actually give you a relevant answer and a few articles, published articles that you can actually look to and go through these 25,000, you know, articles and get the real meat of the issue. Yeah, I also I really like this um, dual use of um, of this project. And to come back to the question, I think um, I looked at quite a lot of uh, FAQs for the general public. There, the most important uh, information is really um, informing people how um, Corona spreads and how to prevent the spreading. I think if this um, is hitting larger cities where people are uh, crowded uh, together, um, this information needs to be there in the right way and in a trusted way. Um, I think this is really important. And then this dual use for the general public and then as uh, Tony mentioned for the researchers, this will be incredibly useful to speed up the innovation process. Hi there. This is Daniel Whitenack, one of the co-hosts of Practical AI, and when I'm not working on Practical AI, I'm developing my own AI applications or I'm training teams at other companies. I've been doing this for over 10 years now and I've trained more than a thousand people. Now I'd like to invite you to my new live online training event called AI Classroom. In AI Classroom, I'm going to teach the practical skills I've learned over the years using the latest open source AI technology. You will learn both AI theory along with practical hands-on implementations in both PyTorch and TensorFlow. After attending AI Classroom, you'll be able to understand the latest models, implement your own models in code, 
train computer vision and NLP models, create model inference servers, and experiment with state-of-the-art methods like reinforcement learning. AI Classroom is taking place this May. It'll be taking place live and completely online in a high-quality virtual classroom, so no travel is required. There will be two cohorts with convenient time zones for Eastern and Western hemispheres, so don't miss out. Tickets and more information is available at datadan.io. That's datadan.io. And early bird pricing lasts until April 3rd. See you online in AI Classroom. I guess coming out of, you know, out of that and into kind of looking at the next layer, I'm, I'm wondering, we've kind of talked about what COVID QA is, and we've kind of talked about it being based on the CORD-19 data set. I'm wondering if at this point, now that everyone has a kind of a sense of what you're trying to accomplish, if you could kind of dive in into specifically what this is that you're putting out there and making available to the public. And as we get a sense of that, we'll dive into kind of how it works and what's the technology underlying it. Yeah, let's maybe also best then separate it. Um, this tool use one for the general public, explain this, um, go into more detail, and then also the um, um, researcher use where we mainly use um, extractive technology. Sounds great. Exactly. So for the general public, it is basically matching user uh, searches, user questions to the questions we crawled from the official FAQ pages. And the technology is based on open source technology, PyTorch, Hugging Face Transformers, um, and also our um, other framework, Haystack, that can basically um, do question answering at scale. And um, we started off with the question matching in a very simple way. So basically, we just indexed the questions in Elasticsearch, and incoming queries were then matched with this Elasticsearch index, which is basically just a rule-based matching. And we thought this is um, like a good baseline for people to continue working and developing because it's easily extendable to other languages. Elasticsearch doesn't really care about the language so much um, that uh, has been inputted. And it is also super fast. And during the, the hackathon and the last days, we experimented a lot with uh, BERT-based embeddings. And um, if you just, so BERT is um, like a, a language model where you stick in a text and you get then a vector representation of um, basically like a VirtuVec was before for words. It now works on sentence or document level to get like a document representation of it. And um, these models, they really don't work so well when you just take the embedding and you um, compute similarities, like for example, with a cosine um, similarity metric. They don't work so well out of the box. So you need to find ways to adjust these language models to suit your need. And um, there we used a really nice library, um, Sentence Transformers. It's um, from a, a German um, NLP uh, laboratory, UKP Lab. Um, Niels Reimers is also a main contributor there. And this basically takes a BERT model and um, creates a clone out of it, like a Siamese network. So the weights are totally the same. You stick in the query that the user types in. And on the other side, you stick in the questions that you have already crawled, crawled. And then you get representations for both. And then 
you can compute similarity metric and this whole network is trained end to end with exactly this user questions and the questions you have and this works really really great like the more data you feed into this network the better it can match questions and we've then also seen over the course of uh, the hackathon that this is uh, the way to go and we need to extend this also to to other languages because the questions from official FAQ pages are uh, phrased in a very yeah official tone and people who want to ask questions um, more uh, write in a colloquial manner or also there are spelling mistakes and these models cover this by part um, quite well and this is why we are actually trying to push in this direction more more and more so i'm pretty curious about that and chris could probably guess that i'm i'm very curious about that because of my interest <laughs> in, in languages um, which we've talked about a lot so you started talking about the sort of elk stack or, or elastic search, you know, matching with the index and then talked about BERT. So I'm curious, there's of course a lot of marginalized language communities out there that also need this sort of information and are only becoming even more marginalized because they don't have access to proper health information. And I'm curious, so with that sort of flow that you talked about, you have a language model, let's say like BERT or, or a transformers model. So you could train this sort of model, assuming you had had data in, in the language. Um, and then there's this uh, sentence transformers and, and matching piece that you talked about. In terms of transitioning that piece and the training of that piece, you mentioned you, you have kind of your set of scraped questions and then the set of user questions. Do you need annotation in terms of, you know, matching uh, known user questions to the properly matched FAQ, you know, scrape data? Is that what you need for, for that certain piece? Exactly. This is exactly right. And we created uh, manually. So um, the, the core team uh, distributed a set of like 30 questions and we manually created um, rephrasings of these questions to basically evaluate the models. But now we also implemented a feedback mechanism into the UI. And also we have a Telegram bot and we can maybe talk about the Telegram bot as well later. And there people can actually give positive feedback or negative feedback saying that maybe the content is irrelevant, um, it doesn't match the question, or uh, the content is outdated, for example, to inform us that we have to adjust our scrapers uh, in a way. And this, we hope, will scale to other languages, and all the data that is coming from this will be open sourced in this COVID-QA repository, and we'll um, make this uh, also available to other researchers that they can improve a question matching for COVID-related questions. This is super cool. I, I love what you're doing on this. I, I guess uh, one of the things I wanted to ask is maybe as people focused on these technologies and we're doing this day to day in our live and you know the efforts that we're engaged in, in in our own projects are built on these data sets that we have. And yet, as we look at this crisis and we're looking at the fact that the data set may or may not have everything you need, which you kind of alluded to there, you know, in terms of how applicable it is and getting that feedback, what kind of strategies are you thinking of in terms of being able to provide the outputs that maybe some users are needing if they're not in the Cord 19 data set inherently? Is that just a limit? Is that a hard limit of what you can tackle? Or have you thought about uh, how to extend beyond the limitations of the data set you're working with? Um, so exactly like this is then the, the second stage where we um, have a more an extractive QA that takes um, some unstructured um, text database like the CORD19 dataset 
for example, and then extracts question. We think that this will be related to researchers, but we could also envision that more text that um, the general public would be interested could be searchable with this uh, system. The only problem there is that this extractive QA mechanisms are incredibly hard to scale to a huge uh, amount of users. Yeah, So we would possibly do this for the general public in more like an offline uh, way where we collect questions and if a lot of questions come up that cannot be answered we might need to um, use these um, extractive QA models to answer them from different data sources. Yeah so just to kind of follow up on that I think that it's worth noting here that I think it's really cool how you've approached this because there is existing sort of question and answer data out there that's from a trusted source. So let's say FAQ pages from the World Health Organization or something like that. So in the first case where you're talking about doing this matching with the the transformer models, you're actually matching a user query to a trusted source answer for that question because it was posted on an FAQ site. But then in the second piece what you're just talking about in terms of extractive QA, really now what we're talking about is saying, okay, well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I think the goal here would be to say, well, the user isn't asking exactly what's on the FAQ site, or maybe the user isn't sort of general public user, but they're a research user. And like you said, Tony, they want to know a very specific question that's not on like a FAQ site, but it is in some research article or it is on some trusted source page. So this is like totally unstructured data. It's just like an article. And you want to ask some random question about that article. And that's where, you know, this extractive QA comes in. Tony, could you maybe comment a little bit about that and how this sort of extractive QA model is, is maybe different from the sort of embedding matching that, that we're talking about in the other case? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the the way these models, you know, typically work, they they, they talk about a language model. You know, I, I usually think of it, you know, it's learning the statistics of a language. So, you know, it, it's effectively like learning I before E except after C, um, or learning that, you know, if uh, the way I kind of go over it is if, you know, if, if the Dewey Decimal System is this random alphanumeric number system, but, you know, you give it to any librarian and they're able to take very different books and be able to basically place them correctly in a library in, a, in an ordered kind of structure. And and so a lot of these models are doing the same thing. They're, they're basically just looking at patterns of word co-occurrences and, you know, and the statistics of how words occur. And what we're trying to do here is for the models that have already been trained, they're, they're usually trained on things like Wikipedia or, you know, English language, German language, text, which is great, but for these sorts of things, you really want to get into the domain-specific terms, so the medical terms, the genomics terms, the more difficult and more infrequent terms that won't be showing up in Wikipedia, um, and trying to learn the statistics of, of that data set. So they have existing things like Cybert and BioBert, um, which are BERT models that are built using things like the the BioASQ uh, data set. And so, I, I, you know, I, Timo and I kind of had, had talked and we said, you know, what if we took the CORD-19 data set, which is, you know, supposedly, we've looked at it now, there are mostly uh, coronavirus articles, but there are lots of other articles as well in there. So the the first, you know, rule of data science, the data is always going to be dirty, you know, coming in. So what we did is, is we said, I'm an MD and Intel has a, a lot of, you know, 
contacts. And so I contacted people from the American Medical Association and people that I knew um, and, and just basically put out a call and said, hey, could we get some domain experts, physicians, nurses, PhDs in biosciences, people that are probably in, in some cases sitting at home. I, you know, I heard on the radio that third and fourth year medical students, you know, are being told to kind of stay home. And I was a third year medical student. I mean, I know how difficult it is. You want to be there. You want to be doing something. You're incredibly intelligent and you have all of these, you know, skills that you've spent the last two years doing. Um, so I just put out a call and we set up a Slack channel and Timo's group uh, had, you know, DeepSet had this annotation server. So we put up this uh, core data set and it's essentially the Slack channel allows, I think we've got We've got like 24 in the Slack channel right now. We just we just started yesterday on the annotation, and we right now we got over 100 question and answers off the data set just in the in the first day. And so these are things like you know I'll read you some of the ones that I'm looking at now from from the website. You know how many amino acids are in the SARS-CoV protein, and the answer is 76 amino acids. And so this is something where you know Wikipedia is not going to be able to get you there. Um, these are directly from the articles. It has a link back to the article that you're you're talking about. Things like what does the SARS-CoV protein activate? NLRP3 inflammasome. Again, very, very detailed kind of question and answer things that are either specific to viruses or specific to epidemiology or specific to SARS itself or, or COVID or MERS um, or any of these kind of similar pandemics that, we, that we've seen. And the nice thing for the domain experts is they just log into a website. All they need is a web browser and an internet connection. And as long as they can highlight some text, they're good to go. And uh, so we just throw them at it, give them, you know, some walkthrough videos and let them go away and annotate. I'm kind of curious as you're talking about the specifics of amino acids and such as the, yeah. I know that China had uh, done a complete genome mm -hmm. of this virus fairly early on and, and published it. Have you been using that? Has that been helpful? And has that informed any of the work that you guys have been doing in the project here? Not for us. So what we've got so far are just the published articles that were on like PubMed that were, were pushed into the uh, to the core data set. But it's certainly something that we could add into into things. So kind of the, the mechanics of how these question and answer systems work is that it's kind of the, the annotator kind of goes backwards from the model. The annotator reads through the article. So this is a published, you know, peer-reviewed article. And the annotator comes across a certain fact and they say, that's interesting. That's something, you know, that's specific, that might be interesting. So they highlight it um, and they click question and they make up a question based off of the highlighted text in the article. So if they had the genomic sequence or something like that, they could certainly, you know, if, they, if that were in the, in the text article, that's something that they could definitely uh, highlight and make up a question to. And then the great thing about this is, you know, on Timo's side, when he, you know, creates an extractive AI model for it, um, it can actually extrapolate and then say, okay, I, I understand the context and the statistics. And so if you threw me a new question that wasn't something that the annotators had ever come up with, it should be able to do a pretty decent job at kind of figuring out what it it's looking for in that article. Um, so if I put up a brand new article, if I put up a genomics article to this website and ask some questions, it should know where to look for in the text. And that's what's coming back is the model is not just making up words, it's identifying, it's highlighting the text and saying, here's the highlighted answer in the text. Does this seem right to you?
The changelog is deep discussions in and around the world of software, and it's been going for over a decade. We interview hackers like Chris Anderson from 3D Robotics. At the time, drones were like predators and global hawks and military industrial, and they were classified and super, you know, $10 billion things. And we had just built a drone with Lego pieces around the dining room table programmed by a nine-year-old. And it's like, okay, that should not be possible. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's not, it, when, when a nine-year-old can do something that is classified, that literally export controlled as munition with Lego, with toy pieces, it was something important in this world has changed. Leaders like Devin Zugel from GitHub. In the like 10 to 15 year range or 20 year range, what I would really like is for, if you have like three 12 year olds hanging out and one of them's like, I wanna be a firefighter. Another one's like, I wanna be a lawyer. I want one of them to say, I wanna be an open source developer. And innovators like Amel Hussein. I've yet to kind of see applications at scale that don't use multiple languages, that don't have just arcane stories behind why this weirdo thing exists, you know? Like, all right, when you open this file, you're going to have to turn around three yeah. times and tap your nose <laughs> once. <laughs> like, it's just, it's, it's just the most hilarious stories, you know? But applications are living, breathing, they have craft, that's normal. So I want to normalize weirdness because that's just how applications evolve over time. Welcome to the changelog. Please listen to an episode from our catalog that interests you and subscribe today. We'd love to have you with us. Kind of talked about the QA annotation that, that Tony has kind of helped spin up and really utilizing that expert input from doctors, from medical students, from medical professionals on the CORD 19 data set. I was curious to kind of push that back to you, Timo, and, and see what your thoughts are in terms of let's say that Tony was able to get all this annotation in place, and it sounds like there's a great start on that. Um, how do you see that being integrated into the COVID QA system itself? And maybe how do you see, you know, the two sides of the COVID QA system developing? Yeah, exactly. Good question. So I would say it starts with the scale of um, data that is needed. So for this um, question matching, we can either use already pre-existing external data sets and then this matched questions, maybe one or 2,000 per language. This is enough to get a really good um, matching system already going. But for this um, extractive question answering, um, there's much, much more help needed. The scales are there, like this common data sets uh, squad from Stanford uh, is in 150,000 question answers answer pairs are there. And uh, that's why we think it's really great to have uh, external help, because this will be the largest lever, getting this data in a format that we can then use in the frameworks. This framework, we actually we use uh, Haystack, which is basically um, enabling question answering on a larger scale. So normally, if you just use a language model like BERT, you basically take a paragraph, a small paragraph, like maybe two, three thousand characters and you ask a question and you compute this but um, for a large document base this would be a very infeasible and then you need um, a two-stage uh, process in the first stage you pre-select um, documents that could be 
relevant with a very cheap and very fast uh, solution. And then you apply more powerful models like BERT. And this is definitely not a real, real uh, it's definitely not a new invention. Uh, for example, there's a um, framework out from Facebook. It's called uh, Dr. QA. This is exactly doing this retriever and then uh, reader uh, architecture. But um, Haystack is doing it in a bit more modular way and modern way with a BERT-based uh, um, extractive question answering system. And we think there's a huge gain in performance. And so we can take these uh, labels that um, Tony and the collaborators produce and stick them into uh, frameworks to train end-to-end -end systems that um, answer questions on this large COD19 data set. So I'm curious, you mentioned kind of the scale of the data and, you know, as we've SIL has been working to get translations in place over the past days. Definitely, you know, it, translations in the thousands seem, you know, within reach. Um, annotations in the hundreds of thousands is is definitely a tough thing, um, especially when you're relying on on experts. But I was wondering if you could speak to, you know, I know some of these sort of domain adapted models, so cybers or, or other ones, do I have it right that those are, are transfer learned from another model? So like if you have a model trained on the squad data set for question and answer, which is totally general domain, is it possible to then transfer learn a, a domain adapted question answer model with the data that Tony's working on? So it's a little bit um, difference. Uh, you have to separate a base language model that can just transform text to vectors. And then uh, you have to take this language model and adjust it to um, suit your task at hand. For example, um, document classification or extraction of named entities like uh, persons and cities. Um, and also question answering. You have to attach um, a prediction head, so another small neural network on top of this language model, and then train this whole joint network on this target task. And um, models like Cybert or Biobird, they are just uh, pre-trained on a large um, biomedical corpus. What we are also doing right now is we uh, took a bird on English data and adjusted it um, because this process of adjusting this um, language model to a domain is not that computational expensive as, for example, training the whole network from scratch. So we took this network, adjusted it to the CORD19 data set. And if we take this adjusted CORD BERT, let's call it like that, and um, stick in the data, the labels, the question answering labels, it will hopefully perform uh, better than just a plain BERT trained on English. So, you know, I guess, how would it be useful? Would it be useful to get more annotators involved in this? And if so, what types of skills do you need in, with annotators to make it useful for them to apply annotations to the data set? Is, who can do that and how many more people would be helpful? As many more as possible. Uh, <laughs> it was the, the simple <laughs> answer. What we're primarily looking for are people that are kind of master's level or above in the biomedical sciences. So, I mean, you don't have to have a PhD to kind of to do this, but I would like to see someone who is comfortable in reading an academic, you know, paper and being able to to explain it to someone else or be able to point out the salient points. Some of the other things that are that are useful, even if you're not one of those expert annotators or you don't you're not sure if you're an expert annotator, are just proofreaders. Um, so we've got on the Slack channel a sub channel called Second Opinion, you know, just like the medical jargon. And so Second Opinion is where we have somebody that just is looking through the the current answers and the current question and answers and going, 
Hmm. I wonder if that seems quite right because that doesn't seem to make sense to me. And so they'll they'll put it up and say, hey, you know, question and answer, you know, two, three, four is kind of weird. You know, can I talk to the person who annotated that, or can I talk to somebody else who might might be able to give us a, a yay or nay whether that's a that's a good annotation or not? So things like that are always always useful. And I'm getting good response so far, but I'd love to always get more. You know, as we talked in the beginning, just people that are kind of at home trying to figure out things to do. Again. You know, we've got geneticists who might not be doing anything right now. We've got people with, you know, biochemistry degrees that maybe maybe they're not doing anything right now, you know, or maybe they're they're grad students or, you know, perfectly, you know, would love to talk to them and try to onboard them for this. If you have an internet connection and know how to use a web browser, you're set. I have a uh, I have a daughter who's a third year med student, so I'm definitely oh perfect. Gonna, she uh, caver <laughs> caver contact me absolutely. We'll get her going today. I'm definitely yeah. going to bring it to her attention. <laughs> yeah, we made it 25 at least on this. Yeah, uh, on this excellent. Goal. We made it to 25. We're good. <laughs> and what's the best way for those sorts of people to contact the effort and and get onboarded? Is it the best way through the GitHub repo, or is there another way to to do that? Yeah, for, so for the for the programmer, it's the GitHub repo, and then for the domain expert, it's probably going to be the Slack channel, and we can put the the Slack channel up on the site, and it's, we're kind of keeping those two communities kind of separated, so one doesn't get freaked out by the other. <laughs> so we'll we'll keep the the coders on one side and the biologics on the other side. And we can also add that into the show notes, which I think is what Daniel was about to say there. Yeah, that way, yeah, it exactly. makes it easy for them to to slide through to those. Yeah, to click on it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely get the Slack team added to the show notes. So if you're listening and you want to be involved in the annotation, take a look at those show notes and make sure you reach out. I was curious on the kind of circling back. So that's a a great way to contribute from the research user side of things in terms of scaling up the general public use case of of COVID QA. It sounds like there's definitely still some needs there around language support and and maybe that has to do with, so maybe Timo, you could mention what would be best to add there in terms, maybe it's scraping more information, more FAQs or adding them. Um, And then also on the development side, where, where are your biggest needs right now in terms of making COVID QA really useful for the general public? What are some needs that you have, whether that's front-end development, maybe not even AI-related, or maybe it is AI-related. I'm really great that we are separating labeling process and developing process because it uh, will get super complicated. And I also wanted uh, here to thank Tony that uh, he's uh, taking also a lot of initiative for supervising and pushing the label process because I think I have never heard of an um, open source uh, labeling process and I think <laughs> this will be a mess at some point and it will be very complicated to interact and also to supervise the quality of the labels but I think this is uh, the great part of this challenge. We just have to try and have to make it work. So this is really great on the labeling part. On the development part for computer scientists um, of any sorts, there's a lot of help needed. So this is just a hackathon project. It's not like a full-fledged professional industry solution. So we need a lot of help. 
I'm in contact actually with a data scientist um, also from uh, Intel through a contact um, from Tony and uh, she's working on an intelligent scraper. So right now we have very manual scraping processes for each page that adjusts to the HTML structure and we would need a more intelligent scraper that you can just point to a FAQ page and it automatically extracts questions and the answers. Of course, there will be errors, but um, I mean, this is a little bit unavoidable. Maybe we can do a review process there afterwards. So this intelligent scraping will be um, extremely helpful. And then um, you also mentioned then that bringing this question matching to other languages, this is uh, something that is um, personally very important to me because I think um, this will create the biggest um, societal impact. And there's a lot to do because for now we have the question matching algorithm with uh, sentence transformers and BERT um, just implemented for English, but making this work for other languages with uh, multilingual language models, for example, with this um, cross-lingual language model open sourced by Facebook, for example, this would um, improve the experience uh, a lot. Um, this on the modeling side and then also a huge help we need on getting this actually to people and after the hackathon we got contacted by a person um, I don't even know um, his or her um, personal name it's uh, the Apache 64 and this uh, person uh, just uh, programmed a telegram uh, integration so this service um, has an API where um, it can match questions and you can call this um, API and he integrated this into Telegram and this bot is just, um, yeah, it's working. Also, he integrated the feedback mechanism to feedback um, the user uh, information back into our system. So this help is really appreciated. But what I think could be important there would be maybe a WhatsApp integration and maybe even if we extend this really to to low resource languages um, where people might not have uh, access to mobile phones with internet, maybe have like a text message interaction. But um, this would be um, a little bit uh, further away, I would say. So I guess as we get toward the end here, uh, I want to ask a question and I'd like each of you to, to, to give me your perspective since you're coming from two different places on it. As we look, we're in this global crisis, which is uh, unique and has stressed all of us and forced us to think creatively in ways that we have just never done before. It's sort of like living in a science fiction novel to some degree. And so as you guys are looking at at the role of artificial intelligence at the world, within the world, and, and we're looking at suddenly we have this crisis upon us, how do you see artificial intelligence technologies uh, and data technologies impacting our way through this crisis at large, not just the project that you're in, but its kind of role in the larger world. How has your perspective possibly changed over the last few weeks with regard to that? And what opportunities do you see as the most exciting, you know, in terms of the path forward now that you are involved in this and seeing the results that you are? Timo, you want to go first? Yes, totally. So I would say um, this will like largen the way corporates um, contribute to like a solution that is um, helpful for everybody. For example, DeepMind has announced quite early a um, solution where they basically analyze the uh, molecular structure with uh, reinforcement learning. And if basically 
through interdisciplinary collaboration that is now made much, much more possible, um, less bureaucratic and very fast and agile. I think a lot of great uh, solutions can emerge. And um, I also uh, think that a lot of um, corporations give uh, their employees actually some dedicated time to work on these solutions. So like a collective effort of um, everybody around the world to work on something that is not directly related to um, making profits, but to solving this crisis. And I think this is something unique, as you said, it's like a unique situation. And yeah, it will um, hopefully can make people collaborate a little bit closer on things that is, are relevant for society. Yeah, so I, I love what Timo said about, you know, trying to do things that are relevant to society. And I'm not an official Intel speaker, so but I can I can tell you that, you know, we're very creative people and we're allowed to do a lot of, you know, things kind of what interests us in addition to our usual, you know, what pays the bills. This has actually been kind of interesting that now the things that are interesting the whole company and in fact the whole, you know, world basically now all the extra stuff is now going toward what can i actually do in terms of the ai stuff i mean i i kind of go back to you know we're sheltering in place and we're trying to get through you know kind of the scale without being connected and and somehow ai is kind of helping us to get through the mountain of data that's coming in and trying to maybe focus us um, a, a little bit better. I mean, it's, it's designed to be a tool, you know, it's not designed to replace anything. It's just, it's designed to be a really, really nice way of sharpening the edge to figure out exactly what we want to do and what, what's possible. So that's where I see CAI coming in. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you both taking time to, to join us today. I know that especially during this time, there's a lot to work on. So thank you for taking time. And definitely, if you're listening out there and you are wanting to contribute in a positive way, um, using your development skills, using your AI skills, using your health knowledge and your medical expertise, please check out this project. Uh, the links are in the show notes and reach out as well. If you're having trouble figuring out how to get connected, there's our Slack team as well, which you can find at changelog.com community. And we're happy to get you connected to Timo and or Tony and their team. So um, just make sure you get connected and, and contribute. And um, thank you both uh, Timo and Tony for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. yeah. Be safe. Stay healthy. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Practical AI. More like this at changelog.com slash practical AI. There you'll find our latest as well as lists of our most popular episodes and the ones we recommend. If this show has helped you on your AI journey, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, part us on Spotify, star us on Overcast, and tell a friend what they're missing out on. Practical AI is hosted by Daniel Whitenack and Chris Benson. It's produced by me, Jared Santo. And our music is brought to you by the Beat Freak, Breakmaster Cylinder. We have awesome sponsors. Please support them. They support us. Thanks again to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. That's all for now. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.